All right. Hi and welcome to uh, Om Filosofers Liv Tanker, a pod where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University. And by my side, as per usual, I have... Matti Jansson, senior lecturer uh, in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. And joining us in the studio today is Professor Jonathan Dancy, uh, currently at the University of Texas, Texas at Austin. Welcome. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. <laughs> and as one of our ambitions is to uh, let our guests talk about talk about their philosophical philosophical development, uh, we tend to start with a question about how they remember their first philosophical thoughts. Yes. Well, I mean, there is obviously a question of what a philosophical thought has to be like. Um, the I'm told that at the age of six, I asked my father what a pronoun was. And he said, well, he, she, and it are pronouns. And I said, that's not the question. I asked you what a pronoun was. <laughs> Now, I don't, you know, maybe that's a philosophical thought. <laughs> Or at least it shows, it seems to show some kind of accuracy <laughs> of attention. How about that as an early one? Yeah, quite impressive. <laughs> But then I think there was a very long gap yeah. after that, before I, um, I, I, actually had any idea. So when were your first encounters with the philosophy of others? Well, at my secondary school, I was taught a little bit of philosophy at the very end by the headmaster who had written the great translation of Plato's Republic that everybody used at the time, Desmond Lee, Sir Desmond Lee. And uh, he taught us some Plato, and it was utterly boring. It was... Um, mind-bogglingly boring. I, had, I knew that, that I didn't want to do that, whatever it was. Um, but I was forced to do some philosophy at Oxford because I did classics, and the classics course um, was mods and greats, as it's called. And the second greats includes philosophy. You just have to do it. And I tried to get out of, get out of greats. Due uh, to your encounter with Plato yeah, earlier. Yeah, I, 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 I decided I would read modern Greek. Um, because that was Greek, and I'd been to Greece, and I discovered you could talk classical Greek in, in Greece and get away with it, more or less, <laughs> if you leave the endings off. <laughs> You'll fudge it a bit. Um, so I thought I could do that, and it would be a lot nicer than doing ancient history, which I had, didn't wish to spend any more time on, and philosophy, which I knew was boring. Um, but they wouldn't let me do that. They said I had to do greats. Um, and I... I w- went to see a man called Sir Maurice Bowra, who was a family friend, who was one of the great champions of Greece during the days of the colonels, when Greece was taken over by some military force, essentially, in a political way. And I thought he would speak up for me because I wanted to do, mod- you know, to be interested in modern Greece. And he said, no, if you do this, you will regret it all your life. So I had to do greats. And I, it was horrible. I hated it. I, I didn't understand anything of what was going on. For term after term, my tutor wrote a report on me after about a year saying, Mr. Dancy and I meet for an hour a week and discuss philosophy, but no idea passes in either direction. <laughs> and it was true, and he knew it was true, and he knew it was kindly meant. It was kindly meant. It wasn't an attack. It was a, a sort of mutual regret. <laughs> he knew what was going on as much as I did. Um, Well, what kind of philosophy did you discuss? Um, well, Aristotle, 
yeah. um, moral philosophy. I mean, it was, there was, there is no course. You just do whatever the tutor suggests and hope you'll be prepared for the exam. In the exam, there is no syllabus. There are just moral philosophy paper and there's a, a theory of knowledge paper, which is everything else, really. Um, moral and politics and everything else. Um, but there was no required anything. You just had to be prepared. Um, so it really didn't seem to matter what you did. So we did whatever the tutor wanted to do. And with Jim Amson, who was my tutor, he he liked talking about Aristotle. So we talked about Aristotle and some... He was a kind of, I don't know, moral philosopher, philosopher of mind, something like that. We did that. Um, but he knew and I knew that I had no idea what was going on. Um, and then suddenly, four months before finals, the penny dropped, as we say in English. And just in a week, it was all clear to me what was going on. I sort of knew what the game was. Mm. This does happen, and it happened to me. And did that also change your feelings towards it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just completely different suddenly. I, I went back and I wrote an essay. I had to write an essay every week um, on existence. And I was chasing around in G.E. Moore. And I read my paper out, you know, very excited. And he, and he said, you know, we had a discussion as usual. At the end, I said, but look, you haven't told me if I'm right. <laughs> and I think he knew then that I had sort of changed, moved up several gears. Um, I mean, it was a very short time before finals. Um, so I just managed that in time, I think, to get the degree that enabled me to go on. Well, that's very interesting to me. Can you sort of... Can you verbalize what happened? No. What, what was the sort of the penny I mean, drop? I, um, no, I mean, it was Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Where I was in the Lake District, which is uh, in the north of England, where I was, it was, we were taking a week off in the spring vacation before the summer term, in which my final exams were, and I was learning this stuff up, not having a clue. And then on Tuesday afternoon, there were you know, me and two or three others. Um, it just happened. It's very strange for, for someone who's un unaccustomed mm. with philosophy. Mm. Is, is that a way to start? I think it's not unusual, in fact, but it was a very extreme case. Um, I mean, it's one of the things, one of the tests for whether you are on the right side of this distinction is whether you know which problems are philosophical and which aren't. And I had no idea about this. Why was such a thing, this such a question, count as you know suitable for a psychology department? Uh, you know, if you're asking about the nature of desire. Um, you know, is that something you should study in a psychology department? Now, I mean, I now know that to some extent, yes, to some extent, no. And some of the questions we ask are philosophical questions, really. Um, and I, I'm completely comfortable with this. But um, I, I, I knew I didn't know what was going on, because I didn't know the answer to that question. And then after, after the change, I did. It's like feeling at home in a subject. Um, but not all subjects, it seems to me, have that, uh, that kind of home. Mm. I mean, philosophy is definitely a home. It completely um, changes everything, really. Yeah. I, I can't believe that... Well, the, I don't, this is, how can one speak about other subjects that you don't know anything about? Um, but anyhow, um, the, there's a sense of being at home in a subject and... I suddenly was at home in philosophy and felt I knew my way around.
would you say that there's some something there to be found or was this some just a psychological change it in was you? A, um, it was certainly a psychological change in me, but it, it could also be that what changed was that I understood something, as it were, so there was something to understand. And there is something, I think there is a difference between philosophical questions and psychological ones, for instance. And if you ask what it is, I probably can't tell you. But we all know, um, and we don't bother about it because it's actually, I mean, um, doesn't much matter most of the time. Was it immediately apparent after this sort of revelation that this is something I'd like to pursue? Well, um, I had the choice between I had the, a choice between three things. One was becoming a professional double bass player, which was definitely one of my choices. What is a double bass? Contrabass. Ah, I see. Um, um, and the other, well, and the other, well, the other of two was to become a school teacher, like my father and my mother's father and everything it was in the family. That. Um, so really, I was sort of facing a choice between those two, and I suddenly, at the last minute, got interested in philosophy. So I asked if I could do the two-year course that they taught as a graduate course, not a doctorate, um, called the B. Phil, which had an enormous and terrifying reputation, um, partly because at least half of the people who did it failed, and they definitely kept it that way on purpose. Um, but I didn't mind about the prospect of failure because I wasn't trying to get a job or anything. I just wanted to learn something about this stuff before I went off and became a school teacher or a double bass player. So I thought a two-year course, not have, I didn't want to write a thesis, um, but I would learn a bit more about this and then I'd go and do that, that thing which was my destiny. Um, and, but during the period, those two years, um, I must have got better. Um, so for my second year, they they moved me to Peter Strawson um, to supervise me for my thesis, a sort of small thesis he wrote. Um, and that was a completely different kettle of fish. Um, I, I, he was extremely nice, um, very dauntingly um, how can I put this? He was dauntingly nice. Um, he was very friendly, but you knew that the standards were incredibly high. So you always felt that you, know, um, you, you should be better. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I came along with my first paper. You had to write a paper each week. I gave him my paper, and, which he read, he read in advance. And he said, yes, Dancy, yes, well, that's very good work, very good work. Um, just got one question for you. <laughs> and he asked this question, and everything fell to the ground in little pieces. But that was fine. It, you know, it wasn't an attack. It was somehow he did it well. It is possible to do that aggressively. Yeah. Um, and younger people often do because they want to show who's in charge, you know. Um, as you get older, I suspect it's easy, easier to lay off a bit. Um, so I wasn't daunted by this particularly. I just did, you know, the best I could. Um, and then he, I was working on a piece he'd written, so I, I wrote a criticism of this. And I went, I, th I thought, this is, I've got him. I've got him. Which you know, revenge. Is. It's about categories. He wrote a paper about categories in a collection about Gilbert Ryle. Gilbert Ryle had the notion of a category mistake. Um, 
where, for instance, um, if you ask whether Saturday is awake or asleep, that's a category mistake. Saturday can't be either awake or asleep because it's the wrong sort of thing. And then you've got a theory of sorts of thing. And you're in danger of carving language up into categories and category predicates that go with that category. Um, and that's what, so a category mistake is to apply to something in one category, a, a predicate that belongs in another category, like Saturday sleeps furiously, or there's three mistakes, or two mistakes. Um, that was one of the classic examples. And once you start thinking about this, of course, it's, um, <clears throat> anyway. And he'd written a paper in this collection about categories, and I, my thesis was on categories. So I wrote, a, I wrote him a paper criticizing his paper. And I thought I'd, I'd got him. And, and, and I, so I went in there, you know, not looking for blood exactly, because he taught me not to do that. <laughs> but, you know, looking for a little, you know, a small victory of something small but mine own. Um, and he t said, yes, well, it was the best I could do at the time. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> it was a nice, it was very gracious. Um, so um, he must have wrote me a nice reference. I got a, I got a job and off I went. Yeah. But so was this your PhD thesis? On no, I don't, I don't have a PhD. No, okay, I see. Um, and that was very common in those days for people trained in Oxford not to have a PhD. If you were trained in Cambridge, you had a PhD. But Ryle and Austin set up this different degree, which is not a PhD, which lasted for two years and had an exam. So it was two years and you're out. Whereas a PhD or DPhil, as it is in those two universities, um, it was supposed to be three years. People often spent six. You know, they hung on. They, you know, they couldn't finish because there was always something. So there was no sort of stopping point. And also, it wasn't obviously a good training for teaching in a university, because actually, to teach in a university, you need a wide range. Um, and PhD doesn't give you a wide range. It gives you a narrow range. So it was actually a very bad training for teaching in universities. And the university system was expanding enormously in the 50s and 60s in Britain. War was over, and there was money finally available. And they were building universities all over the place, and they wanted philosophers and all other subjects too. So there were jobs, um, and the BFIL trained you for that. That was the idea. Um, and it didn't train you to do research. So you had to learn that later. So, so this was, you didn't immediately pursue research, or? Well, there wasn't such a notion, really. We were just teaching and reading books and talking about books to each other, and nobody talks about doing research. Um, and nobody wrote anything much. There was a man who was offered promotion to senior lectureship, which is like an associate professorship at my university, if he would only write an article. One. And that was, I mean, that was a particularly vicious case, but the, you know, the vast majority of academics in, um, at least in the provincial universities, didn't publish very much, and that were not expected to. Um, the Scottish contract said You will, you, your job is to assist the professor in the education in the um, in his duties, um, not to write research. And um, so, so how did you end up doing research? I mean, well, you sort of you didn't. You see, um, it wasn't like that. 
you were teaching some things and you read some things and you, you, you know, I gave lectures on epistemology. And so I read, you know, the stuff on epistemology. Um, I, I taught myself deontic logic um, because I was embarrassed. I was trying to, re to write um, uh, reviews of books that contained logic because I was a, I'd done philosophical logic for greats, but I didn't know any logic. Um, and certainly didn't know deontic logic or modal logic. Um, I could do sort of if P then Q and truth tables. I taught that to undergraduates, so I had to know that. But the other stuff, I, I, I taught myself deontic logic. And while I was doing that, it occurred to me uh, there's what's called the, the, the scope fallacy. Um, um, you ought if P then Q. So if P, you ought to Q. Um, and that's a, that's a fallacy. Um, uh, I want to give you an example of this, wouldn't I, to make that clear. Um, if you're John, this is John Broom's example. Um, if you are going to St Andrews by train, you ought to get off at Lucas, which is the station for St Andrews. Um, you you are going to St Andrews by train, so you ought to get off at Lucas. But what if you ought not to be going to St Andrews? Then probably you have no duty to get off at Lucas. <laughs> that's a, that, so there's, um, so it says it were, ought if P then Q, you ought if you're get, to get off. Therefore, if P, you ought to Q. So now I think of it in moral, moral terms. This is my move, as it were. Um, if you believe you ought to do it, you ought to do it because you should do what you think you should do. If you were doing something that you thought you shouldn't do, that's not good. Um, but what if you're wrong and you shouldn't be doing it? You believe you should do it. Should you do it or not? Well, you might think that you ought, if you believe you should do it, do it. But that seems wrong in case where you shouldn't. You know, Anyhow, I, so what I did was saw the modal fallacy involved, um, as it were. It's like subjective duties. People used to talk about duties that derive from your take on things, um, rather than objective duties, which are imposed on you by matters of fact. So the, the worry about the subjective duties was um, that you can sort of make them by wrong views. You know, I believe that I ought to do it. Well, I should always do what I believe I ought to do. So I ought to do it. But, but I'm wrong, you know. So there's a modal scope fallacy here, which is easy to show with brackets and, and things. And it's possible in, you can, it works also for rationality. If it's rational to do what you believe it's rational to do. But if you're wrong, then it's not rational to do it. Um, so it's the same scope fallacy. So I, um, I was the first person to spot this fallacy. Um, and that was my first article. But that just, you know, was three-page article. Um, nobody writes three-page articles anymore. <laughs> but uh, so when when was this? Uh, 1977. So I'd been in post six years. And it was a three-page article. It was my first article in print. Did it have an impact? Did it? Was it read by others? Um, seemed to go nowhere 
nobody paid any attention to anything as far as because I never saw anybody because um, I mean there wasn't this frantic communication that we have now. Um, I was just in a little room in Kiel in Staffordshire in the middle of England, um, and if we, we we wrote letters to each other, not much because it's rather a bore. You know, sort of, and then we would go to a conference once a year, and that was the extent of one's communication with other people. It was very slow growth. Um, so uh, so uh, sort of uh, one didn't know really whether people were reading it. Um, it you know, these things were published in journals. You got them physically. You had to pay for them. Um, it was about 20 years later that people noticed that I got there first. As I'm telling you this about on this podcast because I'm proud of it and I need to boast a bit. <laughs> um, um, I was definitely there first on that one. Um, but whether, I mean, nowadays people regularly ref, you know, point out that I was there first, but um, I don't make a big song and dance about it, except now. <laughs> <laughs> but it took 20 years for it to... Yeah, it's, well, yeah. yes. I mean, yes, it did, yeah. I would say. Mm. So, just, yeah, back then. Mm. so at this point you're, you have begun writing... A little bit. A little mm. bit. Uh, and is epistemology the sort of area where you're working? or are you I was just teaching. I, I did the lectures um, in epistemology, and so I had to learn it up. Um, and I, you know, I had my lectures. I, I, I didn't write them out. I just had a handout. Um, um, and, you know, I was reading the Chisholm and people of that era, um, Uh, um, definition of knowledge tripartite definition of knowledge that was the sort of thing we worried about in those days Um, and there were the Gettier counterexamples that were terribly exciting at that time and the whole of epistemology seemed to be trying to respond to Gettier which was ridiculous but anyhow that's how it was Um, and um, I was giving my lectures uh, and they were fine and after a while they stopped changing Um, and I wondered myself, what do I do? Um, it seemed to me that, you know, I had two alternatives really. One was, um, to stop giving the lectures and do something else. And the other was to write them down and stop giving the lectures. <laughs> Either way, I had to stop giving the lectures. So I wrote them down. Yeah. And um, this was your first book? That was my first book. Um, and I sold a hundred thousand copies of that book. Um, Mainly in the states, because if you know if you in the states if you get onto if you get used as a it was a it was a textbook, and if you get used as a textbook, there are just lots and lots of students. There's money there. And that was not my intention, um, but it enabled me to stop doing epistemology, which is what I was trying to do. Um, actually, in academic life, it's very hard to stop doing something because once you've done it reasonably successfully, you get constant streams of invitations. And you know, I was constantly being asked to go to America to conferences of epistemologists, and I, and trying to say, please leave me alone. You know, <laughs> I don't want, I don't, I don't wish to, um, you know, promote that me, myself as an epistemologist. I thought of myself as a um, a moral theorist, as sort of really doing moral theory, you know, with an eye open to epistemology, and also with an eye open to such similarities as there are between epistemology and theory of knowledge. Sorry. Just moral philosophy and theory of knowledge, of which there are lots. 
So what, what kind of moral philosophy were you working on during this um, Well, what happened to me was um, I read, when I was at Oxford, um, um, Hare was the dominant moral philosopher. He was the college I was at. Um, and he was very nice to me um, in various ways. Uh, he had me and three others um, to stay in his house for a week and final vacation before finals. And we discussed moral philosophy every evening. He was probably one of the two leading philosophers, the moral philosophers in the world at that time. But he had no side, as we I'm not sure that, that translates for it now. Side means he wasn't proud. He, he he wasn't showing off. He was just liked having young bright young people there talk philosophy with. But he did want to explain to them why he was right. So we wanted to talk about other things. Well, well, you know, what actually happened was he didn't want to talk about why he was right because he was so bored with that. Having to, what he, he wanted to talk about utilitarianism or consequentialism, which he thought, which he'd sort of added to his prescriptivism. So the sort of substantive moral theory was consequentialist, but the sort of theory of moral thought was this was his prescriptivism. Um, so we kept trying to get back to the prescriptivism and explain how wrong he was about that. And he kept wanting to talk about utilitarianism. So there was some, not a meeting of minds, really, particularly that, during that week. But he was very nice to me. Um, but I was much more interested in work being done by John McDowell and David Wiggins, which was essentially realist um, rather than prescriptivist, the, the metaphysics of the thing. Can um, you sort of describe the distinction to our um, <clears throat> Well, um, the... Um, Hare thought that the that it was only in a limited extent to which one could think of moral utterances as capable of truth or falsehood. They were more like self-directed prescriptions or imperatives. Do this. Let me do this. Or yeah. Um, whereas, so you know, that was the theory of moral thought. It, it was not a discovery of moral truth. Um, this was the thing that appalled Derek Parfit so much. Um, John McDowell, on the other hand was of the view that the, you know, there was such a thing as rightness and wrongness here, or truth and falsehood. Um, and the, um, there was no need to think of moral utterances as not aiming at being correct, getting it right about whether to... <laughs> Now, I thought that was altogether more exciting. Um, and that's the way... I went. I mean, it's partly, of course, being interested, influenced by the best, brightest young people around. Young, no, not, not as young as you are, but... Um, but uh, that was the beginning of the... So, the, um, the new realism in moral philosophy. Um, so. so what were your sort of first papers or... Oh, well, they all came because I was, at the same time as I was doing all that, I was reading Ross, um, David Ross, who wrote Moral Philosophy in the 30s. Um, and um, <clears throat> Ross introduced the notion of a prima facie principle. Um, so one ought to be kind to, one ought to help other people when they need it. Sort of what sort of a statement is that? Well, there are certainly people you ought not to help. We know that. 
But still, there's truths in a way. There's some reason to help them. Um, and that's, Ross thought that was a sort of an ought, a, prime, a sort of contributory ought, but not an overall ought. So he tried to capture that by talking about prima facie duties. And you can have several of these at once, and they can compete. So you have a duty to help, but you have also a duty not to do the thing that would be the helping if, for instance, um, it involved an injustice. Um, so we have a set of prima facie duties, and these, in the particular case, you try and work out sort of where the balance of duty lies. And there are no rules for that. Um, that's judgment. Now, I thought this was much more sort of probably true than any, over, than any list of overall principles that are supposed to be exceptionless. Um, I, I mean, Ross's principles are exceptionless, but it, uh, because it's always true that you have a prima facie duty to tell the truth. <laughs> but it isn't always true that you should tell the truth. Because sometimes there's greater reason not to, or we have more prima facie duty not to, or it's because the truth is not your truth. You see what I mean? It's hers. You shouldn't be divulging her truths. Um, but you have a prima facie duty to tell the truth, and so on. So you get this idea that you have duties that you can have principles that conflict. There are principles of prima facie duty, but they conflict, and so um, you can't read off your duties from your principles. Um, and Ross, you know, so Ross took it that though there were principles, they were not monolithic. They were these flexible objects. They seemed to me much more promising. But on the end, it seemed to me that you don't always have a duty to do what you promised, and you don't, or, or any duty, or any duty to help at all. I don't think that if somebody's, you know, planning a coup or a, a mass murder, I have at least some duty to help them in their endeavours. You know, a little one, a sort of small prima facie duty. It's completely swamped, but it's there. I think you have no duty at all. Um, so that was the beginning of what came to be known as particularism, um, where, in a sense, there was something that you were doing when you considered pros and cons or the various differently relevant moral considerations playing some role in the case. Um, but it was um, more flexible than Ross ever would have allowed. So that was a move beyond Ross. And um, this went well with the things I was learning from McDowell and Wiggins, um, where uh, often the focus was on um, the applicability of predicates like, um, shall we say, uh, well, um, all, all the thick predicates like kind, um, thoughtful, um, the... Do you have some duty to be kind always? No. Um, there are occasions when that duty simply vanishes. Um, uh, we have, you know, you have to look at the situation to see whether what matters, what would matter elsewhere, matters here, and that requires close attention to the particular case. Um, trying to work out whether something that would matter in a similar case is mattering here or not. And that's more like well, it's judgment. It's it's almost perceptual, but not it's not perceptual of it. But it's much more like that. Um, um, now that sort of that was the picture I was moving to um, from Ross. 
Um, and that, that kind of approach became known as British moral realism. So there was Wiggins and McDowell who were a leader. I was definitely a kind of um, supporting troops. Uh, but the, um, you know, I had my little bit to offer in terms of um, thinking of the whole thing in terms of reasons. This is where I began to think about reasons. Um, is a consideration that's a reason in one case always the same reason in another case? No. Um, reasons are variable in that sense. Um, so I got into the theory, of, sort of, got into the theory of reasons. Um, what is a reason in one case is um, you, 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 you have to look again to see if it's a reason in the next case. Um, uh, so reasons are contextually sensitive, sensitive to context. But that's fine. You know, we can cope with this. Um, but uh, that was the basis of the sort of moral particularism, because if, if it's like that with moral reasons, then they're just not likely to be any invariant principles. And we don't need them. We can just get away with the reasons. So the sort of the, the, the rejection of moral principles was a simple consequence of the variability of reasons, um, which seemed to me, and does still seem to me, to be undeniable. So people try to find a way around that. So they say, yes, I give you the flexibility of the reasons base, as it were. But still there are going to be um, some fi you know, fixed points of some sort. And I, I've never really seen the need for them. But, but does that mean that you can't make moral judgment, judgment if there's no principles? No, but you've got the reasons. Um, what the there are no principles to tell you how the reasons are to be assessed. The only principle for assessing your reasons is look hard, look as hard as you can, and try and work out what you have most reason to do. Um, that isn't much of a principle. It doesn't it doesn't help really. It just says work hard. Uh, the, I mean, what you know, I know it's awkward because you feel there are some you know, there's some things that sort of we do accept really, which is that you ought to be. Um, kind and helpful to others, except when you know, I come in with my particularist point. <laughs> except when they're in the business of um, something deeply unsatisfactory, in which case you should not be being helpful. Um, and kindness is inappropriate. Um, do you have some reason to be kind? Well, my view was no. Um, you know, do you always have a reason to be tactful? No, you don't. I'm often, you know, most of the time, tactfulness is um, is virtuous. But sometimes tact is exactly what is not wanted. Um, so it seems to me you can play that, you can make that move pretty much across the board. Um, and nobody has any trouble in working out um, when tact is inappropriate. I mean, obviously we make mistakes. All of us make mistakes all the time. But, all things. but I mean... It's not as if we should view this as you know, a completely unmanageable mess. Uh, we have um, you know, a finely honed capacity for drawing for dis drawing distinctions between cases. Um, it takes a long time. I don't, you, you, know, you get this as you grow up. Um, and I think that that is as much true in ethics as it is in aesthetics, for instance. Um, 
and elsewhere in all practical life. So you need, we need, we can't make do without reasons, but the, the variability of reasons, let's say the capacity of a consideration to be a reason in one case and not in another, not a reason at all, not the same as a defeated reason. But I think like if we have a, a, a coherent view on, on ethical values, it, it differs from aesthetical values because the consequences socially are bigger, I guess. Maybe they are, but that doesn't mean to say that you can get any principles out of that. Um, it matters more, you might think, whether you know, whether we do what, morally speaking, we ought to do than whether we do um, the most elegant thing we could, for instance. Yes, that's true. Um, but that doesn't tell you something about the structure of the thought or the structure of the facts that we're dealing with. Um, I think that moral duties, moral duties, no, there are moral duties, but they, they're in the case, as it were, not general. And they are made by the way reasons function. Um, they, you ought to do, I mean, here's a simple, here's a general moral principle. You ought always to do what you have most moral reason to do. That's true. But it's a formal principle, not a substantial one. Can I just sort of ask a clarifying question? I'm not a moral philosopher, and but it, there seems to be patterns across our moral judgments in in individual cases. So typically, uh, it's it's not morally right to kill our friends, uh, right? And um, but you sort of reject the ascension of of that to a, a general principle. There are cases where that might be. Well, I, I mean, they all, it's awful in moral philosophy where we dream up these awful cases, <laughs> you know, and then ask, what should we do? So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I suppose the fact might be that, um, I mean, could it be, is it conceivable that you could have a reason to kill a friend? Could that you ought to kill a friend, even? I mean, having a reason isn't too hard, but you ought to do it. Well, I mean, the six circumstances would have to be very bizarre. Um, but, you know, there's no point in being too pious about this. Uh, it, it might be, I think, I fear, that the circumstances could be so dreadful that this was, in fact, what you should do. Um, now, I don't feel very proud about saying that, but it sort of I don't see that morality prevents it. But wouldn't that be like practical reasons or evolutionary reasons mm -hmm. rather than ethical? Well, I don't see why they need to be. I mean, you know, if you could save the world by cutting off your hand, mm. you should do it. Um, now, what about cutting off somebody else's hand? Um, well, probably you should do it. Uh, what about if you could save the world by killing yourself? Um, you know, the great sacrifice that somebody was held to have done that. Yeah? Um, you should do it. Um, now, what about if you could save the world by killing someone else? This is a bit tricky. But it's not, I mean, you might, maybe you should ask them for their agreement before you do it. Point out that it's the only way to save the world, and they should um, make the sacrifice. But what if, if it would only, what if it would only save the world if you killed them? 
rather than they killed themselves. I mean, obviously this is ridiculous, but morality doesn't prevent that sort of possibility. Um, luckily, we're not going to face these cases. Um, but I, I don't think the structure of moral thought prevents you know, that, those things from being so. But, that. but since it's typically mm. not uh, our... Never so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, well, there's some sort of generality here yeah. that, that explains why people so. have thought. Yeah, that that's right. Principle. But what, what to make of that generality if yes. there are no principles? Well, it's just generality. Yeah. I mean, it, of course it's generally true. It doesn't have true. an explanation. Um, no. Um, the structure of moral thought does not determine um, how generally true some generalization is. I suppose that's the sort of thing I want to say. Um, it's judgment. Um, now, luckily, all these appalling circumstances don't occur, so we don't have to really to worry about them, except in theory. Uh, but uh, let's not persuade ourselves that the fact that conveniently we're not in this situation um, allows there to be a principle which is um, exceptionless. Uh, so, when do you sort of uh, um, present your first views on on, eth- on ethics? Um, well, I wrote a couple of papers in the early nineties, you know, published in Mind, which was sort of took was about moral ethical particularism, as I then called it. Um, that's um, when it, my contributions first appeared. And that in a way, my contribution was to take Ross and to write a more flexible notion of, of a picture of, of what one might call a contributory duty than Ross had. Um, so that was the thing that I was doing that McDowell and Wiggins were not doing. But in a way, they, I mean, what I was doing was fairly humdrum and basic. It, was, it wasn't sort of rich and sensitive, whereas the McDowell-Wiggins material is deeply... Um, rich in a way that I was never capable of. So, I, but I mean, it's okay to be a foot soldier. Yeah. Are you still happy about how you presented your view there or has there been sort of important developments or changes? No, I, well, I don't think really, I mean, the whole thing really is driven by the theory of reasons and I haven't changed that. And and I, I don't think I have changed. Um, the, I mean, I <clears throat> I eventually wrote a long book on particularism, um, which came out in the sort of 2004 or five around there. Um, sorry. Four, that, yeah. yeah. 2004. <laughs> and that contains, you know, a lot more detail, plus the theory of value. There's lots of things in the theory of value. Um, you know, but in a sense, it was simply working it, trying to work the whole thing out as a, you know, a, a properly presented philosophical position, um, which in my earlier book, Moral Reasons, Moral Reasons, um, when was that? About 95? 93. 93, thank you. <laughs> 93. Um, I mean, there's plenty there about the philosophy of action, as it turns out, but I'd forgotten about that. I only, you know, I'd been looking there again and finding this stuff and surprising myself by what, what was there. Um, so, uh, 
So the sort of the you know, the the proper presentation of particularism is the um, ethics without principles. And that's the sort of um, I tried to do do it all. Of course, I failed dismally, but I mean, you know, I, I tried. Whereas the the previous one was a sort of younger man's book, it seems to me. Um, and I was working my way into the subject. But Ethics Without Principles, mm. it's your most cited work. And uh, how, how was mm. it uh, received when you published it? Well, I mean, it's been, in many ways, uh, it, it got, it's had very good reviews. It's commonly referred to. It's, uh, no, it's been, very, it's, it's been very effective, I think. But it is also difficult and long mm. and dense. Um, and less well written in that sense. It's less attractive. It's less easy to read. And I read it myself. I think, you know, I'm having to work. It's, 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 like, it's not like wading through mud exactly, but it, it definitely is, is um, a tough read. Um, and there's, you know, there's not much relaxation along the way. The, um, I had by then, as it were... It was rather, um, moral reasons contains quite a lot of stuff about the philosophy of action, which I also, which I sort of developed in a book that came out in 2000 called Practical Reality. Um, and at that stage, I hadn't really decided to write a full piece of a book about particularism. I thought I would go off and do the philosophy of action. Um, but sort of, I don't know how it came about now, I think people were all were expecting one, so I did it. <laughs> um, but it, and then I finished with that. So I really haven't thought about particularism very much since then. I'm more, I'm more interested in the philosophy of action. Okay, tell me uh, us a little mm. bit about uh, your work in, in the philosophy of action, um, because it connects to to your early work. Well, yes, I mean, it's. It's, it's it's partly the idea of acting for a reason. I'm still, um, the, I mean, I'm not. The, no, there, there is philosophy of action that I don't do or don't do sufficiently well. Um, there are great traditions in the philosophy of action. There's the Anscomian tradition, um, which uh, there are some people who sort of work within that who I deeply respect. Uh, quite a lot of them actually, and I'm, I struggle to understand um, everything that they. Are saying, um, but my contribution was more on um, what it is to act for a reason. Um, there is the question of what action is, you know, which events are actions. Now that's a that's a hard question which I you know, would like to be able to address. But and, um, can you sort of say something about the problem because what an action is. Yeah, why is well what. Well, what is it to what is it to do something? Um, well, um, my answer to that question is that an, act, an action is an a, is for an agent to cause a change, and even that's wrong because sometimes that what you're doing is causing an unchange. That's causing things to stay the same, but that's an action. Um, still, uh, sort of, one hopes to finesse that point and think of, you know, where there's an action, there must be an agent, um, 
causal theory of actions is going to have the word you know, is going to be causing in there. So what are you causing? Well, um, the idea of causing a change it may, it is like making a difference. So it sounds as if you know, that's a, a suitably general thought about what action is. And then you, if you worry that, well, those, like I say, sometimes you um, act so as to, to keep things the same. Well, you might still, still I've made a difference. Since I hadn't acted, they might have changed. It would be all right. Um, the, but my contribution has been not in exactly what action is, which I view as extremely difficult, and only very clever people should do that, um, um, but in what it is to act for a reason. Um, so this is where the theory of reasons comes in again. There are reasons to act, and that's what I was doing when I did moral philosophy. And then there are reasons for which we act, and that's what I was sort of doing when I did philosophy of action. What is it to act for a reason? Well, it's to act in the light of a consideration which as favoring so acting. Now you've got favoring consideration in the light of. We, we're not saying what action is. We're just, you know, just, we're just talking about act. So what is it to act for reason? It's to act in the light of a consideration as favoring, which you, which you take to favor so acting. Can you give an example? Um, well, um, uh, why are we doing this podcast? We're doing it for a reason. Um, there must be some reason for us that we, some consideration that we take to give us a reason to do it. Um, let's say somebody might be interested in the result. Mm. Uh, I certainly so, hope so. <laughs> so I hope so. Um, now, that's a reason to do it. it not all, not always. The, the fact that someone would be interested in it is not always a reason to do it, but in this case it might be. Um, and we can do it for that reason. Now we want to know about that. Um, in the light of, well, that sort of means we've got that reason in our sights. Um, and we take it that it's a reason so to act in the circumstances. Um, and then we are acting for, well, then you've got that little word for, what's that doing? And you say acting in the light of that consideration, it's as it were in your sights. Um, and the for is a kind of normative thing because you're taking that consideration to favor acting as you propose to act. Um, so that's the for, when you act for the reason. It's in response to a consideration as favoring, so acting. So we've got favoring, we've got considerations, we've got sensibility of particular cases, like it won't always be a reason, in this case it is. Um, uh, so, sort of, those are the players in my in my story. Um, it's not a. I mean, there's a, in a way, there's nothing very new here. It's just a, you know, the materials that have I've gradually put together over the years. Um, but you know, the, some people think that the reasons for which we act are our own mental states. This is what I was talking about yesterday here. Yeah. Um, 
and most of those things are not reasons to act. Um, so I don't. I reject the view that the reasons which he act are restricted to our own mental states. I think it might, well, some of the reasons which I act might be the mental states of others, like that. You know, he's upset. That might be the reason why I help out or whatever it is. Um, so we have flexibility of, you know, the variability of reasons, all right. Um, and the materials, you know, the, the sort of, the materials that I've developed in moral philosophy have been very, you know, have, have served me good in good stance, served me in good, served me well um, in the philosophy of action, as far as, in the philosophy of action for a reason. Um, because there are plenty of people who think that the reasons for which we act are mental states of our own. And I think that's a mistake. Um, can you expand a bit on that a little bit? Just why, why is it a mistake to think that? Um, well, um, most of the good reasons so to act are things like um, she has invited me to a party. You know, that's a reason to go. It's not a mental state of mine. It's a fact about her. Now, of course, it's true that I know that she's invited me to a party, but that's not the reason for me to go. It might be among the reasons why I do go, but I'm talking about reasons for, not reasons why at the moment. Um, so it looks as if, I mean, that some that the fact that someone's invited you to a party sometimes is a reason not to go. I imagine I could tell a story. Um, find a case where that would be impressive. Anyway. But uh, by and large, it seems to me, if somebody invites you a party, that's something of a reason to go. And you can act in the light of that consideration as favoring going. So the light is a kind of normative light. It sort of casts a positive um, light on going. And you, your action is a response to that reason as it were um, now I mean that's but the reason is not um, your own psychological states and the, the reason for which you go um, it's true that you do want to go and that's relevant but the reason why you want to go is the reason why you're going um, that's to say it's um, that she's asked you and um, you know all the other reasons that you put together when you go to a party. <laughs> and is this currently being worked into a, a new book? Or um, well, it's, or? no, I'm, I mean, I've, I think I've finished books. I'm yeah. not writing any more books. No. But I know I've finished books because I can decide. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I wrote my last book, which is... Um, no, about five years old. Um, practical shape is about practical reasoning, not acting for a reason, but about reasoning. Um, and again, people sometimes think that practical reasoning, when you consider pros and cons, you, uh, really you're, what you're dealing with is are things you want and things you don't want, you diswant, as it were. And you, you sort of try to, in reasoning, what you do is uh, sort of balance the wants. Um, so practical reasoning is very, very special because what you're doing is 
sort of putting wants against wants, desires against desires, whereas theoretical reasoning is not like that at all. Um, but I think the practical and theoretical reasoning are pretty much the same all the way down. But that's, of course, partly because I think that um, you know, when you're acting for a reason, the, the relation between the response and the reason is the same as the relationship between the response and the reason when you're believing for a reason. So action and belief are just the same. Um, so now um, I can reason from beliefs to beliefs. Why can't I reason from beliefs to action? It's just a different response. Um, so I maintain that I can. Um, in fact, that's what I do all the time. Um, every sentence I utter is, you know, there's an utterance, which is an action, and there were reasons to say it, and those are the reasons why I'm saying it. I'm for, you know, I'm saying it for those reasons. Um, the only difference between reasoning and simple acting for a reason is that it's more complicated in the reasoning case. You've got pros and cons, as it were. Um, the so what I tried to say was, I mean, what people think that theoretical reasoning is inference, and you can't infer an action. But you can infer a belief. No, I don't accept this. Um, it may be that we don't call the decision what to do um, inference, because we've learned not to. Um, but really, it's all the same. You recognize the reasons, you work out what response they most favor, and you respond in that way. So there's sort of a similar transition. Exactly the same. The, the response is either action or belief. Um, but, it, you know, you decide that P. Now, it's not up to you whether P, you know, but you can decide that P all the same. I, mean, I, I was trying to work out whether I had enough time to get to the station before whatever. Well, I decided that I did. Now, it's not up to me whether I have enough time, but I can somehow, I can make up my mind that just so like I make up my mind to, um, which I do when I'm reasoning to action. That the, according to me, we call, the people tend to think of making up your mind that P is inference, as it were. And making up your mind to is not inference because you can't infer an action. And it's true, you can't infer an action, but you can reason to one. Just the, and the patterns of the general structures involved are the same as um, reasoning to belief. So, I mean, the, you know, I've got my, my reasons why it is the case that P, and I believe that P for those reasons. I've inferred that P from those matters of fact, suppose matters of fact. Um, now, we don't infer actions, but we do. All the rest is um, just the same. I come to act by working out what I have most reason to do and doing it. I come to believe by working out what I have most reason to believe and believing it. it according to me, it's just the same. Um, it's almost too good to be true, this, in a way. But it, anyhow, that's what I was trying to say in this book. Um, so the thought was... Um, Practical reasoning has as much claim to be reasoning as theoretical reasoning. Um, 
one thing that worries people is that they think that there's the model of formal or deductive reasoning, and you never get that with action. And that's because with formal or deductive reasoning, if the premises are true, the conclusion's already true. So the already is a bit of a dodgy word there, because it sounds temporal, but of course... Um, uh, whereas with practical reasoning, the sort of the, the considerations you reduce are all in place, and you, you haven't yet done it. So people get concerned by that. They think that things got to be very different if um, the action hasn't yet been done, but the considerations that favour it are some sort of there in place. But I think that you know that. There's, you know, there's no real difference here. One should not be allowed that, a lot allowed that to destabilize um, the extraordinary similarities there are between responding to reasons, complexes of reasons, mm-hmm. on the theoretical side and on the practical side. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us here today. Right. <laughs> well, not at all. It's been a, a, the sort of pleasure that one always um, hopes for. <laughs> Thank you to Lam Studio and Peter for letting us record there. And for those of you who are interested in, uh, uh, perhaps in particular, uh, uh, Jonathan's thoughts on the metaphysics of uh, reasons, they can go to uh, the uh, Puffendorf site, because Jonathan is this year's uh, Puffendorf lecturer at Lund University, and see three of his lectures there. 